agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love the government of the government love the government. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Thanks, Trey. It's great to be back. Yeah, it is always fun when we get our our, uh, our month time to come out and uh, bother people. I mean, <laughs> inform people <laughs> about stuff. <clears throat> It's kind of a it's, it, we I think we're really getting the great time slot because last week, as listeners will know, uh, we kind of took a little bit of a hiatus. A lot of us who are doing educational stuff like Ken and myself, we were getting prepped for and getting into classes. And with you know, the uh, unusual nature of this particular fall semester, uh, we had opted to kind of take that week off. So, Ken, you and I, we get to actually relaunch the show for fall 2020 here after our, our after our week hiatus and so listeners i hope you uh I hope have a good time with me and ken um so i think the the big thing that we need to start with here is actually we've got a big news item from the politics guys i don't know maybe i think you might know about this ken but i'm not sure um but did you know that coming this wednesday that's august the 26th we're going to be running a series of mid new midweek shows on the 2020 election. Now, the first show, again, is coming this Wednesday, and it's going to be focused on election security and voter fraud. And there's going to be future episodes focusing on other key policy differences between Trump and Biden, uh, including COVID-19 response, health care, economic policy, regulation, race and gender, immigration, and a whole lot more. Now, the series is going to be hosted by Mike, but what's unique about this uh, is instead of having one of the normal other co-hosts, Mike is going to be joined by six Northern Kentucky University students who are actually taking a special elections and podcast class with Mike this fall semester. And what's also kind of cool about it is, is that the students range from being completely committed Trump voters and, as I understand it, um, you know, they range in age as well, but from completely committed Trump voters to some really fiery progressives. So there's going to be a whole lot of ideological diversity. And, you know, that's something that we is very important to all of us here on the politics, guys. Now, the other cool part about this uh, Wednesday show is this Wednesday series is going to be available to everyone, not just Patreon supporters. Now, we're going to continue to have our Patreon Only's bonus show on Wednesdays, that full-length supporter episode. Uh, As a matter of fact, Ken and I will be recording one shortly, and we hope you'll join with us on Wednesday. But additionally, again, starting Wednesday, August 26, Mike and six students from Northern Kentucky University are going to be doing the special Available to Everyone midweek shows on the 20. 20 elections. And I know that I and everybody else hope that you'll check it out and let the politics guys know what you think. Well, now, did you know about that, Ken? No, that's the first time hearing about any of that. Although I do think Michael told me he was teaching a course about the election and podcasting. So I should have figured that this might be in the works. <laughs> it was all it was all coming together. Yeah, th- this is, in fact, Michael's <laughs> class. Right. I mean, he's he's got the sweetest class deal for the semester. He's basically yeah. doing the podcast. So good job on that, Mike. And and for the students, I'm real. I'm excited to, to hear what they have to say. <clears throat> 
Now, for our show, though, Ken, uh, this week, of course, the thing that dominated all the political oxygen uh, was the DNC convention. And one of the things that was fascinating to me was it was unprecedented in that it was done solely through media stream. So we didn't have the big room. We didn't have all the delegates in the same way. Uh, as, a, as a result, as I was watching, there was obviously a lot more control. Uh, for those of us who kind of keep up with other uh, avenues, it reminded me a lot of uh, Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference this past summer, where they got to kind of control the whole message in a way they didn't always do when you had all the journalists in the room at the same time. And it really got me to thinking, and do you think this uh, is a technological turning point? And, and, and what I've been thinking about is, if you think about it, this has been a pattern that we've observed historically, right? Uh, we see this with FDR and fireside chat with uh, radio, the use of radio. He uses this new medium, captures attention. And then we have another major turning point in, uh, in media politics when you have the debates between Nixon and JFK as we get viewers who are watching versus listening, responding differently. And so for me, as somebody who's long trumpeted uh, that political communication needs to better account for technology advances. Did you have that kind of feeling this week with me as you as you looked in this? Is the DNC uh, convention, is this kind of crossing the Rubicon? Is this the convention in the age of streaming? And do you think it's going to happen again in 2024, even if it's modified, but more in this vein, as opposed to the old school, everybody in a room? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's true about so many uh, aspects of American life. Um, you know, you and I have been um, doing more online teaching than we used to do. And I, I don't think that's ever going to go all the way back to the way it used to be. Uh, a lot of people have been telecommuting more than they used to. And I don't think that's going to go all the way back to the way it used to be. And uh, I think this is another example of that. I think the um, there's aspects of the way um, this DNC convention was, was television friendly that I think um, some aspects of it were a lot easier to do this way than to do in a big room with 20,000 people. And I'm sure that they will go back to having big rooms with 20,000 people. But but I think when you're watching it at home, you're going to see a mixture of footage from that big room with 20,000 people and, and a lot more of the kind of uh, more um, intimate footage that we were seeing this week. Do you think that offers I mean, one of the things that I that I find unique is how do different kinds of presentations of information lead to different kinds of responses? In other words, what are the effects of different information dissemination types? And so for me, as I was watching the DNC's platform, I mean, you got to see, like, for example, um, we, we get the, the stutter speech, which I think is this really powerful mo uh, moment. You get Billy Elijah, uh, kind of this really powerful moment for Biden. But in a way, you never would have done on a stage. It, it, uh, one of the things that we kind of see as you move um, from into the uh, into the television age is the ability of, of candidates to better kind of package themselves. And it seems like this might be maybe the height of that, uh, the the ability to just make sure exactly every element of what you want to come forward, come forward. So do maybe when you say the 20,000 people in a room, do you kind of see this maybe as like the Olympics in the future where you have, you know, a glimpse of kind of the, everybody's yelling for the, for the, for the 50, you know, 50 yard dash. Uh, but then we have all of this kind of pre-packaged material about the uh, athletes surrounding it. Yeah, that's kind of the way I was thinking about it. I mean, there were certain kinds of things that were lost, um, you know, that some of the types of um, some aspects of some of the speeches, I think, would have been more effective if um, 
there would have been 20,000 people applauding at the right moments. Um, and I think they're going to want to get that back. But I think what they gained in compensation for that was um, that it made it um, so much more possible to to um, make it feel uh, more more close, more intimate, more personal. Um, and I think that that's that's something we had this past week that I think, you know, as we've said, is going to have some staying power. Now, you know, that that's more of the the packaging. And I'm, I am a guy, I mean, it's just my training, it's my literature. I'm always interested in the packaging and in the media delivery. Yeah. But in the on the content side, I am curious, especially about your your position on this, because whether you're looking at left-wing outlets or right-wing outlets, they both seem to me to really be attacking the convention. And it made me chuckle, to be honest, uh, because it seemed like on the left, we have a lot of Democrats worried that Biden and Harris are really just more of the same centrist Democratic policies that have always happened. The same kind of complaint, I think, uh, that was happening in 2016 with Clinton. And and they look at things and they complain like, for example, AOC only got 60 seconds of airtime. But of course, current Republicans got a lot of airtime, something we've been kind of debating uh, on the uh, on the the Reddit bipartisan politics and on our Facebook page. So what about for you, Ken? Did you see this as being a convention that was attempting to push things uh, to the left or to the right? No, I saw this as a convention that was seeking to um, submerge those kind of questions. It was it was all about. Um, not pushing things to the left and not pushing things to the right, but trying to de-emphasize uh, policy really and, pol- and 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 to unify the party. And I think the the you did hear from a lot of Republicans, and also I think Biden's speech um, was really an outreach to Republicans, um, and uh, you know, sort of saying you know he'll be a president um, for everybody, and he's not going to make big changes that 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 big segments of the population won't like. Um, I, I think that there's a, a huge focus on unifying the party and on getting rid of Trump and on winning, and that that's really um, created a lot of consensus within the party um, that uh, the, the political battles between the left wing of the Democratic Party and the, and the centrist wing of the Democratic Party are going to be are going to be fought later um, during during the years of the Biden administration, not during the campaign. Now, this is one of the things that I've heard from my more left-leaning outlets and left-leaning friends, which is basically, look, every time, what you just said there, we're not going to debate that now, we're going to have it happen during the administration. We're not going to debate that now, we're going to have it happen during the administration. And I think that's why there's been some critique, I I think some relatively loud critique, which I found a little surprising given that you want to beat Trump, uh, suggesting, look, it's time to give up on centrist policies. You know, you've got to give us our airtime now. We've got we've, we've got to hash these things out now. You can't keep pushing us uh, after elections because after elections, it never seems to happen. Uh, and, and, and the reason I guess I'm, I'm pushing you on this is is that, you, you know, you're probably a little bit further to left than the average uh, Democratic voter. So how do you feel? about? I mean, you seem pretty comfortable with saying, look, let's because we've got to elect a Biden and move forward um, and then, you know, have this conversation later. Do you have any sympathy for those who say, look, no, it's, it's our time. Finally, it's now. No, no, I, I don't. Um, and I, I think it's it's very significant that. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders is looking at this the way the way I was just talking. Um, AOC is looking at this the way I was just talking. They're they're very willing to um, um, not push their agendas right now and not create divisiveness within the party because they see that um, 
really the, the, the opponent that they want to have going forward is Biden. The opponent that they don't want to have is Trump, right? So if, if you think like they're going to have a lot of disagreements with Biden, that's fine. Biden's the one they want to have their disagreements with. Trump's not the one they want to have their disagreements with. So, so I, I think the, the, the serious um, progressives who were um, part of this political season, and that would essentially be uh, Sanders, Warren, and and maybe people like AOC, although she wasn't running for president, right? Um, they're all on board. They're they're all on board with this strategy, right? They're all willing to sublimate any critique of of, of centrist democratic politics for now um, to unify the party. And I, I think that's the only uh, sensible um, thing to do. I, I I don't have really any sympathy for people who want to create division within the Democratic Party right now. Okay, I hear that. You know, and, and it's it's interesting to me sometimes because. Your policies when we have a conversation are a little bit further left, but you, I think oftentimes you feel more willing to moderate them in election years than I, I see, at least in my experience, some other Democratic voters seem to be willing to do. And so, so you're, 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 you're always an interesting uh, case example for me, Ken. Um, yeah, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that Biden is coming in with a, um, a left agenda. I think Biden yeah. is coming in with what was essentially the Clinton agenda and, you know, Maybe the Obama agenda, although I think maybe even closer to the Clinton agenda. But that's that's okay because he's going to listen to all the Democrats, right? He's he's going to, you know, if if the center of gravity within the Democrats moves further to the left, I think he will move further to the left. So so that's the kind of politics that there can be time for later. So you know, we're talking about divisiveness and parties, and so I think the other thing, maybe ironically in a way, that comes up during the DNC debate. <clears throat> the DNC convention uh, is that the, the the number of Republicans at the convention. Now, from my point of view, I mean, I'm just going to put that out there. I was happy. I was happy to see a lot of prominent Republicans come out in favor of Biden. I thought it was a good move. I thought it was a strategic move uh, on the Democrats' part to put those individuals uh, front and center. You know, and, and the, as the hosts have been talking about uh, online, again, we've we've been kind of hashing this out on uh, bipartisan. In politics uh, and on the Facebook page is, you know, as far back as you kind of really take a look at, there's not really another phenomenal example where you have so many prominent non-democratic fi- uh, figures uh, coming out in favor of the opposite party. I mean, maybe you have Lieberman, it's something that, that was brought up online uh, from Jay a, a couple days ago, but, you know, that's one individual we got a lot of people here. Uh, you know, for me personally, I, it made me feel a little bit less alone. <laughs> uh, but I kind of wonder what this means for the Republican Party. Uh, and, and I wonder, from your point of view, how did you feel about, did you feel like Republicans in part were kind of co-opting or were you happy to see us uh, anyway, in the same way you were saying, like, look, I'll have the debates with you later yeah. once Biden wins? Yeah, you know, I was happy. I was happy. Um, I think it was good. But I, I um, but I did hear a lot more of that kind of critique. I certainly heard from fellow Democrats who felt um, that there was something um, uh, compromising, I guess, about having um, so many Republicans well, like uh, Kasich, supporting his, Biden. Because, yeah, his, uh, his like in Kasich, the middle of the yeah. road speech. Yeah, continue. Yeah. Yeah. That that would mean that that Biden would have to be um, uh Moving to the right, um, and so maybe that wasn't necessary or good. I heard that critique, but I don't. I don't agree with it um, because the election is going to be won in the same states that it was won in uh, four years ago. You know, it's it's going to be 
Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, maybe Ohio, maybe Florida. Um, and you know, to, to win those states, um, it, it is going to be helpful uh, to get some uh, Republican votes. And if you think about maybe 10 or 15 percent of Republicans really don't like Trump, if you can peel off even half of the, those voters, um, then those close states aren't going to be close anymore. So I think it's electorally necessary. And I think it's actually consistent um, with Biden's message that um, part of the kind of personal decency that he's running on uh, is that he's going to be a president for all Americans, not only for Americans who voted for him. And I, I think he's serious about that. So I think it's, it's actually a good look to show that, to demonstrate that by uh, putting a lot of Republicans up there. Now, this also brings up a, a question, a unique one is, is, and that is, it's one thing, I mean, it, it doesn't appear that Kasich or Powell uh, are you know, on the verge of, of jumping ship and becoming Democrats at this moment. But it seems likely, though, if the, the Republican Party remains that way, that there could be an exodus of Republicans into the Democratic Party. And as if you're saying, it doesn't have to be a bunch, you know, even if you can capture a third of uh, disaffected uh, Republican voters and they come over and decide to become Democrats in a longer term way because they see uh, Trump's push in policy as being permanent. So even if Trump, the individual, doesn't end up being a permanent fixture in the Republican Party, uh, that his fingerprints remain on the party. How do you feel as, as a Democrat about that? Because, I mean, I, I can see that shifting a little bit, the center of gravity. It's one thing for, you know, Biden to come out with this kind of message of unity. But do you see any kind of realignment, uh, you know, two years down the line as we're looking at midterm elections or four years down the line uh, as Republican voters start to potentially peel off uh, and or that aggravates further uh, those more progressive Democrats? who have long been in the Democratic Party and already thinking it's a little bit too conservative. You know, I don't have a prediction about what's going to happen. I, I don't have my crystal ball polished today, but I, <laughs> but I will say that I, I, I would be uh, I would welcome that. Um, I think if you if you're going to be a, a majority party with a sustainable coalition or so you're going to keep that majority, you know, then it's going to be a relatively big tent. And and, you know, that is going to mean that uh, it's it's probably going to have to be a coalition of progressives and centrists. Um, and I think that's fine. I'd rather have even though you might say the center of gravity there is going to be a little further to the right. You know, that's going to be true on some issues and, and maybe not on other issues, maybe on some issues, the center of gravity will be further to the left. And 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 I think to, to have a, a workable, sustainable majority um, you know, I, as a progressive myself, really, I would like to have the situation of having these arguments with fellow Democrats, even if they're centrists, rather than having to have these arguments with Republicans. So I do think, you know, victory is, is the most important thing. Uh, if, if a realignment can be created, that's the most important thing. And if the cost of that is that um, there's going to be uh, uh, more, more people um, in my own party who I disagree with on some issues, um, that's fine because they're, 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 they, you know, they'll listen and I'll listen to them. Well, you know, that uh, that's kind of what I figured you'd say, to be real honest. But I was wondering if I could push you into a corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, in some ways, even, even what Franklin Roosevelt did, right? I mean, he, Franklin Roosevelt passed an awful lot of progressive legislation, but the, the coalition that he built was, was uh, at, by the standards of the day, 
centrists and progressives. Um, and then he, and then he had a, a, a huge coalition. Now, I now, was also oh, going to say, I almost forgot ahead, about the ahead. realignment. Nixon, Nixon did that, right? So Nixon peeled off uh, a percentage of Southern Democrats. The Southern strategy. Got a, a permanent, yeah, he got a permanent realignment out of that, or at least one that maybe lasted until maybe just about now, if it's finally starting to, to, to realign the other way now. But uh, but it does happen. There are times where um, there, there can be um, significant numbers of defections from one party to another by certain demographics. And I, I do think Nixon pulled that off, and then Reagan really cemented that as well. So we have seen that kind of thing. No, I don't disagree. I think one of the things that is hard uh, in the contemporary era is that as you move forward, the party realignments, I think a lot of times, and, and this is probably in due in part to the hopeful nature of, uh, of uh, people who don't want to affiliate with a party and or third party members who are always hoping that, you know, this this year is going to be the year that, you know, pick which of the major parties starts to defect. There's going to be a realignment and therefore, you know, the libertarians are going to be the next uh, you know dominant party. But really, party realignments in the contemporary era and the modern era they haven't been in the sense of changing the party apparatus, but rather changing the coalitions that define those party apparatuses or changing the voters who uh, align with one of those parties as a result of uh, ideological shifts. So I agree with you on that. And that's kind of why I brought that that question up. I will say, though, I mean, of course, there was a thought that during uh, Barack Obama, there had been a number of kind of scholarly works and popular works talking about, you know, the Southern strategy part two, you know, can, uh, you know, Barack Obama peel enough African-American voters uh, from Southern states and or um, some conservatives to move that over. And there seemed to be evidence that it might happen. And then it just kind of fizzled. Uh, and you're right. I mean, you know, crystal balls are uh, notoriously difficult <laughs> to peer into. Yeah. Um but I do think right. I feel as though, this is an age that could happen. Well, yeah, sorry. no, please. Could happen. Yeah, I mean, with, with African-Americans in the South, um, I think that's going to require change in uh, a little bit more demographic change and a little bit more change in um, percentage who vote. But it does seem like some states like North Carolina could be up for grabs now. Um, so maybe maybe that that I think Obama did carry North Carolina he and did. then it yes. didn't. Um, yeah, it didn't really stay in the Democratic column very much, but it's but it's it's heading back into the Democratic column now, I think. So uh, and certainly with Virginia, it completely flipped um, into the Democratic column by now. So we have seen a few states um, where there have been those kind of shifts. But I, I do think it's hard to know whether to attribute that to um, changes um, from a particular demographic and how they vote or whether it's just changes in the demographic that lives in the state. Like maybe in Virginia, it's because more and more of the population is in suburban D.C. rather than in the more traditional parts of, of Virginia. So it's hard for me to get to the bottom of what, what causes all that. But we, we certainly see some states that were um, solid red uh, moving into being very close and competitive right now. No, and that's true. I mean, the other possibility is we're still seeing and – and I think this is something that's very difficult when you're looking – you know, on the show, we always focus on the current events, that week's events, and it can be really easy to always see the event that's occurring in front of you as being the defining event as opposed to being part of a trajectory of motion, right? Uh, and so I, I like what you're kind of suggesting here, even if even if somebody doesn't agree with the outcome, the idea that you have to look at social events as kind of having a lagged 
effect, right? So things that start to happen in build, they don't generally produce their results immediately. Instead, it takes time for those things to kind of disseminate into culture. So you have these delayed variables that uh, that affect things. And, and, and definitely voting would fall into that category. Now, another item from the DNC, uh, and, and this is one, you know, another first we're talking about, well, does this change the way that uh, the DNC is going to prevent uh, present conventions in the, in the future? But we also had another first this year, and that was the president, Donald Trump, is live tweeting his responses to the Democratic convention as they're going on. Now, he kind of remains silent until Michelle Obama starts talking. Um, but by the time we get to Thursday, the, the, the tweets from Trump are coming blazingly fast. Um, and this kind of it ties into our first question, right? The format of this allows for, for tweets to kind of be, you know, the two screen medium. Um, so what do you think about this? I mean, this is this is a new, this is a new protocol era we're in. The president of the United States, he's obviously watching it or watching it through some of his affiliates, and 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 live responding to it. Now, I think we're kind of used to that, uh, you know, when you're watching Hamilton. Uh, but this is a first when it comes to the president or a convention. So, what did you take of this other new precedent? I think that's idiosyncratic with Trump. I, I, if, if he gets reelected, he'll probably keep doing that. But if anyone else is president, uh, if Biden gets elected now or if another Republican comes in afterwards, I don't think you're going to see much more of that. I think whereas I think the type of convention we saw might represent a paradigm shift. I think the you know really um, inappropriate and low class behavior that Trump is exhibiting. I don't think a lot of the types who are going to be um, nominees to run for president of the major parties going forward are going to really be um, wanting to engage in that kind of behavior. Well, the reason I was thinking about it was uh, we have now seen a lot of Congress persons even nearly live streaming uh, other events, including State of the Union addresses. And so, you know, so you're kind of just dismissing it and saying, eh, I think that's the end of the day. But don't don't you kind of see that behavior be, being normalized at, at, at the congressional level and that that might then therefore trickle up to the president? Or do you think that's just, well, again, like you said, idiosyncratic behavior of the, of the president and, and, and people who take the presidency are going to put that down below them. They're not going to do that kind of thing anymore. Well, I mean, of course, you pointed out rightly that um, there's some Trump-like people in Congress. So you've got Jim Jordan and Louis Gohmert and people like that. Um, I like to think that they're not going to be nominees uh, for, for president. Um, you know, may, maybe they are, you know, but I, I, I think I'm still kind of thinking that um, Trump. Uh, well, I mean, I can't, you know, maybe he's realigned with the Republican Party and all the nominees are going to be like Trump from now on. But I, I just still find it hard to believe that that could be a sustainable party. And I think the party is going to have to just conduct itself with a little more class and a little more dignity um, to, to, to really have a, a, a role as one of our major political uh, parties. And it, it doesn't seem like that because Trump's, a, you know, he got elected, he's president and he's acting the way he acts. But I, I just have a hard time believing that that's really our future. But maybe maybe I'm just being a Pollyanna here. Maybe I'm whistling <laughs> past the graveyard. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I guess there could be a middle ground, too, in the sense that you could see some additional class, but you could still see. Um, less all cap screaming and or personal attacks while you're still commenting on the things in real time. Uh, 
But I mean, you make an interesting point. Maybe it gets so tied to the classlessness of Trump uh, that that the opposite thing happens and people kind of step back from it and say, well, you know, I don't want to I don't want to seem like I'm I don't want even a hint that I'm in that category. And therefore, I'm I'm just going to abstain from that kind of behavior altogether. Uh, You know, that could be the case. Uh, I just have one last thing I want to talk about on the uh, on the convention and then we'll move forward. And, and maybe this is just a pet peeve to me. And so maybe, Ken, you're just going to say, Trey, this is just you're being crazy. But it's Bill Clinton. OK, I'm just going to come out with it. He, it's like, why Bill Clinton? Why, why can't he just go away? I mean, so he comes out this week and he's talking in the same exact week that he has to have another scandal when he gets all posy with an Epstein victim, uh, you know, the Daily Beast this uh, week broke the story and so did the Daily Mail um, about Bill Clinton. And I have to admit, as, as excited as I was to see a lot of the convention, as excited as I was to see Republicans willing to come out against Trump, I kind of felt that having, I mean, hasn't the Democratic Party moved beyond the Clinton era? And and doesn't he really embody some of the things that we're attacking with Trump? And and so for me, I just saw it as being a horrible optic. I I was just really disappointed with the Clinton speaking spot. And I was curious how you felt about that uh, from a different point of the aisle. Yeah, I mean, I certainly understand what a compromised figure uh, Bill Clinton is. And and I agree with you probably that the convention would have been just fine if he if he didn't speak there. Because uh, what does he add? I, like, who does he who does he reach out to? I, I, that's what I was thinking. I'm sorry. Go right, ahead. Right. I, I, didn't mean I, I, I agree with you on that. But but yet I, I think there's a couple. Um, I, I don't want to just say it was a huge mistake to have him speak because think about a few things here. First, in uh, um, twenty in uh, in 2012, that's only eight years ago um, when Obama was nominated to run for re-election and, and they had the Democratic convention. Uh, Bill Clinton gave probably the best speech at that Democratic convention. So he's he's capable of giving a very good convention speech. This one was a little bit anodyne, and they only gave him five minutes, maybe because they were so worried about the optics of having Bill Clinton speak. <laughs> well, but, and and then it came he, to pass, of course. Yeah. yeah yes, yes. But he is actually um, a really – he has been in his life a really good public speaker at events like this, and it was possible that he could have really delivered a speech that um, could have been very effective. Now, in the event, I don't think that happened, but I – but I don't blame them for thinking that could happen. Also, um, the, you know, I think it was important in a certain sense, symbolically, to have all of the former Democratic presidents um, contribute in some way. Even Jimmy Carter did, um, because it contrasts with what's going to happen next week. Right now, there's only one living um, uh, former Republican president, but he's not going to be there and he's not going to endorse Trump. And I think we pretty well know that his father wouldn't have been there and wouldn't have endorsed <laughs> Trump if he'd, if he'd lived, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, so I think the the idea um, of, of saying all the Democrats that have been president, um, you know, are, are fully in support of Biden and compare that to on the other side, all, all the Republicans that survived and even a few that recently died, they, they, they would have all voted for Biden also, not not for Trump. So so I think uh, creating creating that optic um, is helpful in a certain way. But I, I do agree with the. Uh, the the negatives you know that you identified i mean they they and yeah they those are real 
Well, and you know, and I'll finish it on this because so you know, we've spent a bunch of time on the convention, and that and that's and that's good, and that's happy. But of course, we recognize that conventions don't change voters for the most part, right? You know, this is events that uh, that are really more about, I think, signaling and helping us understand what these kind of larger frames are going to be more so than the than the specifics. But I mean, you bring up a good frame there, right? You know, the presidents versus no, pre- <laughs> you know, yeah. no president. And I'll be honest, I hadn't thought about that. That that, w- that was not something that had occurred to me. I don't know if it, 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 it gives me a pass on Clinton, but it, I had not thought about it in that frame. Well, Ken, I think we might need to move on to our, uh, that was a big first story, but we need to move on to a second story. Uh, and that is that this week, the Select Intelligent Committee's bipartisan report on the Russian interference in the 2016 election came out. Specifically, Volume five. Yes, it's such a big deal. We have five volumes. Now, did you I I don't know how many listeners get as wonky as I do about some of this stuff. So I down I had downloaded uh, the volume. uh, I've downloaded all of you. I've got got volume five this week and it clocks in. Do you do you know how big it is? I'm just wondering. Almost a thousand, almost a thousand pages. Yeah, you were 966. Yeah. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. Okay, if there's yeah. anybody as wonky as me, it's probably you. Um, yeah, right. it comes in at 966 pages. And, it, you know, a lot of times I, I've looked at congressional documents. You know, for those of us who are around, I think a lot of us read portions of or large portions of um, the report on 9-11. And a lot of these things can just... They're important, but they're not always easy reads, right? <laughs> you know, nobody dives down and thinks, ah, I will actually say that this is a pretty readable document. And, you know, I read it before a lot. I mean, I haven't gotten through, obviously, I have not read all 966 pages. I don't think, Ken, did you read all 966 pages? No, you know, I'm, I'm addled when it comes to reading downloads on computers. I'm going to buy a copy of this and then I'll actually read the whole thing. But <laughs> right, right now, it's only you do what I did. put it on the iPad and then you can read yeah, it in, in, you know, in dark mode. Uh, I'm, I'm too old. People. I'm too old for that. <laughs> I'm just going to get a book. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> wait, wait, you can't be that old, Ken. Yeah, I'm, I'm just a, you know, I'm set in my ways, though. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I'm yeah. not going to make you, like, I, gonna, out I'm, yourself I'm, right here yeah, on the show. I'm right? going to buy a copy when it's printed. The publishers are printing it, and then I'll be able to read it all. But I did I did download it also, and I jumped around in it to get to the summaries and things. But I, I just couldn't. Can I, I just don't have it in me to read all that. I hear you. Yeah. Well, here, you know, here's what's, I'm, I'm going to talk about some of the, the points, and I thought we might hit some of the major points. <clears throat> but the thing, the optic thing, I always, again, that's where I always end up uh, heading first. You know. This report is being kind of widely praised by both Republicans and Democrats, right? But for some very, very different reasons. You know, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, in a pre- uh, press release praised the report on the investigation. That, as a matter of fact, that he had set in motion way back in, in 2016. And he said, quote, I commend my colleagues on both sides for keeping their work out of the partisan spotlight and their focus on the facts, end quote. Uh, in the same press release, McConnell's going to use a lot of the same language that acting chairman, um, committee chairman uh, Marco Rubio did, uh, saying things that this this report reaffirms uh, that special counsel Mueller's finding that President Trump did not collude um, with Russia. Now, from the guy who's been reading the report, that oh, that strikes yeah, me as a little bit a, unusual. A, yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, that's quite a lot of spin because the report makes clear that uh, Donald Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, did in fact collude with Russian intelligence. Yes, you don't um, even have to read so- into the report. You can just read like the, you know, the, the takeaway paragraph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so it doesn't, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't say for sure that Donald Trump was aware that Paul Manafort was colluding with um, uh, Russian military intelligence, but it does say that it's been proved um, that that Konstantin Kalimnik, who was Manafort's deputy, um, who helped him with all this stuff, was actively working for Russian military intelligence the whole time. Well, I think a lot of what this comes about to, and this is something else uh, that we've been debating uh, on the uh, Bipartisan Politics Reddit and on our Facebook page, and that is, is I think that uh, my friends on the right, what they see here is they're like, yes, I agree with all this, because this all shows that the collusion has nothing to do with Trump. Now, I, I don't take that view. And, you know, Ken and I, you know, we've, we've already talked about that. Um, so, but I'm curious about your response to it because, you know, you're going to come from a different place than me. So what do you say to the person who says, look, I get it. Yeah. Manafort, he was a, he was a, a scudsy dude, but he got things done. Trump didn't know what was going on. The most important people didn't know what was going on. That's not collusion. Nowhere in here does it say, you know, Trump colluded. And therefore this just confirms this has all been kind of a hoax out to get Donald Trump. What's your response to that? I'm curious. Well, I do think that Trump himself is personally implicated in this report um, by the uh, phone records of the phone calls that Trump had with Roger Stone about the WikiLeaks, mm-hmm. right? So that, so that um, uh, in part which three, Stone, I believe, yeah. yeah, in part three, yeah, which Stone had lied about to investigators, and that's one of the things that he was convicted of lying about to investigators. But the the phone records. Um, Pretty much show that, uh, that 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 Stone and Trump uh, were discussing ahead of time. Uh, each time WikiLeaks was about to um, release some of the hacked Democratic emails, um, so I think that implicates Trump directly in the collusion. Um, I also think that you really can't uh, um, really. It's for, you have to really suspend disbelief to think that Trump's own campaign manager uh, Manafort. Um, has a top deputy who's a Russian military intelligence officer, and Trump, you know, Trump is sending um, Don Jr. and and Jared and these guys um, to the to Trump meetings. Tower meeting, which um, is part of the report. Trump, <laughs> which is part of the report, yeah, um, to to meet with Russians who say that they've got uh, um, uh, dirt on Hillary Clinton. I mean, you know, who who does he think he's meeting with? Who does he think he's sending his son and his son-in-law to meet with? I, I well, clearly I just don't the Girl see, Scouts, uh, Ken. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, um, yeah. I just, I don't, I don't see. Uh, you know, you have to, you have to really um, be willing to turn some very blind eyes to some very obvious inferences there. Um, uh, and in the case of the phone calls with Stone, to direct um, telephone records of when these calls took place uh, to, uh, to to say that it had nothing to do with Trump. Well, and to go further and to take a look at some of the actual passage uh, from the report, the report itself states that the Russia took immediate steps to influence the 2016 election. And again, I'm I'm going to I'm going to pause and editorialize right here. I think that, that no one has given Romney enough credit. You know, back when he ran against Obama, he, he he called this out and the whole world and Obama laughed at him. And I got to be honest, on this one, 
Romney was dead right. Democrats were dead wrong. You can you can you can complain about that editorialization in the minute, Ken. Uh, <laughs> and but 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 the uh, the takeaway, uh, and you've kind of already summed it. But this is this is the quote from the uh, from the committee quote. The committee found that Manafort's press, uh, presence on the campaign in proximity to Trump created opportunities for Russian intelligence services to exert influence over and acquire confidential information on the Trump campaign. It goes on to name Russian President Putin by name as being behind the hacks, unquestionably, of the Democratic Party and designed to harm and tarnish, in the words of the report, Hillary Clinton. And not only that, it calls out, as you had mentioned a minute ago, Trump Jr. You attempting to gather Russian information, knowing it was Russian information. Whew. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, what do you add to that? I, I don't know what you say. Yeah, I, I don't know how much more. I, I do believe we're going to start. I mean, if, if Biden gets elected, um, I think we're going to start to see criminal cases. Uh, I, I think this Senate report, um, along with the Mueller report together, uh, contain enough information that um, the, 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 you'll have grand juries reconvene and investigating and issuing indictments um, against many of these people. And then that'll, you know, we'll see if any of them flip on, on Trump. And, uh, um, you know, there's going to I think there will be some opportunities for, for some 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 of these people um, to, you know, if they want to tell the truth and cooperate to save their own skin. And uh, we'll see if the trail leads all the way to Trump. Yeah. And, and, you know, what's particularly a little bit crazy is, is that also released this week uh, is that the Republican and Democratic chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee made criminal referrals for Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Steve Bannon, uh, Eric Pence uh, and more. To federal prosecutors in 2019 as they were undertaking uh, this work, uh, passing along their suspicions that all of these guys had misled the committee during their testimony. Um, and that, and that kind of gets, uh, that comes out this week from NBC news. And yeah, I, I don't think this is done. I mean, it's, it's clearly not done. Um, right. But you know, I, I just have a hard time and, you know, I'm just going to say it. And this is an area where I don't think we're gonna have a lot of disagreement. I, I just don't understand how, how fellow Republicans can't just be like, this is absurd. This is just, and absurd is not even the right word. It's too weak of a word. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would hate to have to be attempting to defend this. Uh, and I'm happy that, I, you know, I don't. Um, I, I just. Yeah, and, look, and, and look how many of the people that were surrounding Trump in, in 2016 have already been indicted and, and, and in many cases convicted. Uh, of different kinds of crimes. I mean, almost everybody that was involved with that campaign, you know, finally finishing with Bannon this week. But yeah, uh, well, let's, you know, and, let's and, talk and, about that. Yeah. That's, that's, I think that's probably going to end up being one of our last stories because, you know, this Thursday, this past Thursday, Steve Bannon uh, was arrested and charged, ironically, by postal workers um, with fraud in New York. Uh, and so what had happened was Bannonly, uh, allegedly at least, is uh, defrauded donors out of hundreds of thousands of dollars with a crowdfunding campaign called, quote, Build the Wall, end quote. It brought in a little over $25 million. And all that 
can mean is, is I think can that we are not promoing the way of uh, the politics guys well enough because if they can get twenty five million dollars for the wall, surely we can get like a hundred thousand for the politics guy. <laughs> anyway, that aside, uh, maybe we should build. Maybe we should build a wall. There we go. <laughs> for every twenty dollars you give to the politics guys, we will take one brick out of the wall. How about you know it could be it could be a bring the wall down. Um, I'm going to get in trouble with my uh, anyway. um, The indictment charges that uh, Bannon used the nonprofit to take one million from the crowdsourcing funds uh, to cover quote in the terms of the uh, of the document hundreds of thousands of dollars in his personal expenses end quote. And as you had just mentioned, Bannon is now joining uh, the list of six other Trump associates who have been charged federally. Right. You got Roger Stone. You got Michael Flynn. You got Rick Gates. You got Paul Manafort and you got Michael Cohen. Uh, And now and now we got Bannon. Um, So I guess the question I have for you, since you're the the lawyer on this, Ken, is there's been some scuttle that this this is going to be particularly bad news, the Bannon news for Trump. Because one way that Bannon could attempt to get out of this is to say, hey, I've got information on better things. What do you think yeah. of the likelihood of that? Or do you think that's just pure speculation? Yeah. That that I mean, I don't that is speculation. I think it would be I don't think it would be. Um, I don't know that it's that anyone's in a position to even think about that exchange yet, because. After all, this is still the Trump administration that's prosecuting Bannon right now. Things could change if it becomes the Biden administration, um, but I don't think I don't think that's something that the prosecutors are. are, are that's not a, a, a transaction they're looking to make right now. The, the Bar Justice Department, um, and also the, this um, the thing that Bannon was uh, indicted for is is very attenuated from anything having to do with the 2016 campaign. So I, I'm not sure that's going to happen. I will say I have a little bit of qualms for about this indictment and a little bit of sympathy for, for Bannon here, perhaps surprisingly. And and, and you'll probably be even more, more surprised to hear that uh, I'm going to say the same about uh, uh, the New York Attorney General's um, um, prosecution of the, the NRA. Um, they're, they're very similar cases. Right. These are these are cases where both the NRA and Steve Bannon are basically being um, indicted on the theory that they they fleeced their idiot donors. Right. And that that's that's really the theory of both cases. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, and and uh, and, and, and I, I think that, you know, the, the, the reason I have a little heartburn about this is because I don't think any of their donors are upset by it. Right. I mean, if, if you look at, um, you know, who 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 is it that's delighted? To see the NRA indicted and, and Bannon indicted, um, it's people that would never have given money to the NRA or to build the wall. And mm-hmm. you know the, the people that uh, the people that actually gave the money to the NRA and to build the wall, they knew what they um, were getting. Effectively, you know, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of them would say, well, even if Bannon told us that he's going to give every penny of it to build the wall, and in fact he only gave twenty four out of any every twenty five dollars of, of it to build the, the wall, and he put the twenty fifth dollar in his pocket. Um, I don't I don't know that a lot of those donors would be that upset by that, really. And so so I feel like there is a weirdly, um, you know, like like people people are really um, a lot of people on my side of the aisle are just so excited to see people like Steve Banner, or the NRA getting um, uh, indicted, that they're not necessarily wanting to think too hard about whether there's some prosecutorial overreach here. But but I, I do feel like these are somewhat victimless um, kinds of crimes that the that that you know if if I gave money to an organization that I supported and I found out that actually the the people asking me for the money were pocketing a whole lot of it, 
I'd be pretty mad. But but I actually don't think that's the case with the people who gave money to build the wall or to the NRA for that matter, because I think they 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 care about the symbolism of those organizations as much as they care about whether the money's going to be used effectively or not. That's my read of them, anyhow. I think that's why they're not that um, upset. So I, I I don't know that I I don't know that I think it's a 100% righteous prosecution, even though I think it's it's true probably that that there's evidence that Bannon pocketed about one out of every 20, 25 of the dollars that came in. But I, I don't know how much of that was a, um, something that his donors really um, were offended by. Well, Ken, we're starting to run out of time. So I think what we might need to do is uh, turn to our last item, which is what we've been reading this week. Uh, and uh, I'll let you go first if, you, if you're interested. What, what's been your uh, what's been what's, what you reading? Reading. Yeah, so I actually um, I, 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 I was rereading a book that I read in college. Um, hmm. And it's 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 a book by um, the uh, the late 19th, early 20th century historian of the um, American historian, uh, William Dunning. And the book is called um, Reconstruction, Political and Economic, 1865 to 1877. Uh, Dunning wrote it in 1907. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic kind of pro-Confederate um, history of the Reconstruction era, um, really very critical of um, Reconstruction. And I, I wanted to read it again because um, I, I just noticed that a lot of the the contemporary um, American historians that I think the most highly of, um, like Eric Foner, who dedicated a lot of his career to kind of refuting Dunning, um, he would still say, well, anyone who wants to understand Reconstruction should still start by reading Dunning, and then you can read why he was wrong about everything. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and so, so I, I just felt like I should go back and reread Dunning and get that uh, that sort of older view of um, uh, Reconstruction as being um, kind of a, a a corrupt uh, um, uh, enterprise and a um, offense against the South. Um, so that's sort of the perspective that Dunning takes. It's the opposite of my perspective, but I I wanted to go back and reread that. Oh, and that's uh, I can't even tell you. I don't think I've ever read that whole book. I think I've only read pieces oh, the, of, uh, of of Re- Reconstruction, Political and Economic by William mm-hmm, Dunning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's the first major history of Reconstruction. It's uh, written more than 100 years ago now. Um, but it's it's worth reading, but it is uh, really um, unsympathetic to the newly freed African-Americans. It's extremely sympathetic to the people that had been running the Confederacy. And it, it's kind of a it's kind of jarring to read with a, a modern eye. Modern, uh, but I, I, yeah. Yeah. But I, I think it is. Uh, it's still um, he was he was the first serious historian to write a serious history of, of Reconstruction. Well, it, well, very cool. Well, the one I, I went in a completely different way. Uh, I have been reading. I, I don't know if you're familiar. You might not be. Uh, Richard Foster. Uh, he, Richard Foster is a Quaker theologian, uh, and he he has written extensively on the spiritual disciplines. But he has one particularly famous book uh, on prayer. And so this uh, week and last week, I've been kind of I've been working through Richard Foster's book on prayer. Uh, and a big part of that was, you know, school's been starting back up. I've had a lot of things going on with me and, and in my, uh, my own life, you know, I am a, um, you know, unabashed Christian. Um, but, um, I, I don't think that, uh, prayer has always been my strong point, uh, when it came to that. And we were coming back, having students come back and there was a lot of, question about how this was going to go down. And, and so I, I've, I've been trying to really dedicate this semester to focusing on the spiritual discipline of prayer. And, and what Richard Foster does is he actually goes through uh, different kinds of prayer. Uh, and 
for me, it's been a wonderful meditative opportunity uh, to kind of revisit a practice that's dear to my own tradition. And I know not everybody who who uh, listens to the show obviously fa- uh, uh, shares my uh, faith's tradition, and then that's completely fine. Um, but that's just you know part of what we do when we're talking about what we're reading is just kind of sharing who we are and what we do, and uh, and that's a big part of my life and big part of what I attempt to do is to have a a large spiritual component to what I do in my life. And, uh, and, and it, it was very helpful for me this week to kind of focus on this. And, and to be honest, it, it brought me outside of my comfort zone uh, in a way from his Quaker background. And, and I've really appreciated uh, his, uh, his Quaker theological points inside some of the different kinds of uh, points of prayer. And, and for somebody, it kind of helped me reopen my eyes uh, to some of my own spiritual aspects. And so for those who may share uh, similar faith traditions that include prayer. Uh, you know, I've been reading Richard Foster's book on prayer. So, well, Ken, it's always fun doing the show with you, and I hope you enjoyed doing the show with me. Absolutely, it's it's a pleasure. Well, good. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Politics Guys. I know that all the hosts, myself included, we absolutely love working on the show, and to make it possible, it it takes listeners like you. And one of the ways you can make this show possible is by continuing to subscribe to the Politics Guys on the podcast app of your choice. So does sharing episodes. So does sharing this particular episode with your friends, with your family. Annoy them with something that isn't QAnon. Um, <laughs> but additionally, <laughs> in addition to that, we also need your support. Not, uh, if Bannon can get $25 million, let's let's go for a little bit for us. Um, and unlike The Wall, which gets you nothing, One of the great things about being a supporter of the Politics Guys is you're going to get access to some really cool content. And one of those is our full-length supporters-only Wednesday show. As a matter of fact, this week, Ken and I are going to be covering a bunch of stories we weren't able to cram into this show. We're going to be talking about USPS. Uh, We're going to be talking about some of the Trump uh, legal woes, uh, including his stay on tax returns, uh, and and a whole lot more. So if you would like to continue to listen to Ken and and myself as we talk about these additional items on Wednesday, our full show, all you have to do is become a uh, supporter of the Politics Guys. To do that, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go to our website, politicsguys.com slash support. So join me and Ken again on Wednesday. Get all of this additional bonus content by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you've got a question, a comment, a correction, or just a random thought you'd like to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We also strive for civil and rational debate on our Reddit at Bipartisan Politics, and we've been having some really phenomenal conversations. Uh, Mike and Jay have been kind of getting into it uh, on the question uh, of supporting for Trump and for Republicans, and it'd be wonderful to have you there as well. So again, uh, join us on our Reddit at Bipartisan Politics. You can also find us on Twitter at Politics Guys. And as a final reminder, don't forget, we'll have new free shows from Mike's new show with six Northern Kentucky University students. It's going to be a lot of fun. That one is free for everyone, and that's going to be starting in just a couple of weeks. 
The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Masker, Nathan Sosowski, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show, a bonus show, on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.